so it's great to uh, have people joining, and um, I'd ask you to grab your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy, and uh, this morning we're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. Now as I read it, you follow along in your Bibles, and if, if you would bring your Bible, that'd be great. Follow along in your Bibles or on the screen, and let's pay careful attention to it, because this is God's Word. It's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's sufficient, it's our only rule for faith and practice. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them... You fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's spend just a moment in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for life with you. Thank you that we could sing from the heart and, and say to you this morning, I depend on you. Lord, would you enable us in humble reliance upon your grace to live as your followers? Equip us by your word this morning for that task. Oh, we need you, Jesus. We confess to you that in thought and word and deed, when we forget about you, Jesus, we're capable of wrecking our life. So I pray, I pray that you would forgive us our sin and forgive me my sin, there are many. And Lord, thank you that through you, we have the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life, and that that life starts now. Lord, I pray you would work this morning, and we ask that by the teaching and preaching of your word, you would draw lost sinners to yourself, build believers, and equip workers and send to the nations disciple-makers until Christ comes again. I pray in his name. Amen. So I did a little research this week, and I discovered that just about every shipwreck that's ever happened was an accident. It was unexpected. That, that people didn't get in their boats or their ships and go out to sea expecting to be shipwrecked. And that's true in the physical world, and it's probably true in the spiritual world as well. And so I want to remind you this morning, don't wreck your life. Do you see in verse 16, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Paul warns us, don't wreck your life. That's what we're going to learn this morning. Now, 2,000 years after that first, first warning was given by Paul and to Timothy, 
Don't wreck your life. I haven't seen anything in my lifetime that would tell me that we don't need to hear that warning. If it happened to the wisest man, Solomon, if it happened to the strongest man, Samson, if it happened to the man who had a heart after God, David, if they were capable of forgetting about God's promises and wrecking their lives, then how much more do we need to receive the promise, receive the admonition, receive the command to don't wreck your life? Nothing in 25 years of ministry has told me that I don't need to hear that. And nothing in 25 years of ministry has told me that you don't need to hear that. Don't suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now let's think about what Paul says in that verse. That it's possible for us to suffer shipwreck if we abandon our faith. And the image that Paul gives there is that all of us have found refuge in faith if we're in Christ. If we're in Christ, we're unsinkable. But when we forget about Jesus, and when we step away from the faith, we get out of the boat and we begin to sink. None of us, none of us apart from Jesus are unsinkable. But any of us, when we remember Jesus, can live even in this broken, fallen world unsinkable lives through faith in the promises of the gospel. So what I want us to learn this morning is don't wreck your life. Now, my, uh, did y'all hear that I'm a grandfather? Yeah, it's true. It's true. Now, I observed Madeline when they brought uh, Hudson home, they did lots of things to childproof their home. They, you know, bought locks for the cabinets. They took things that were on low shelves and moved them up and to, in anticipation of the day when he'll crawl and walk and all those things. They got these special uh, knobs for the door so that, you know, when he's grown, he can't turn the doorknob and get out of the room or out of the house. All these things to childproof the house. I get, that's important. But listen, in 18 years when they take him to college, if they stop at Walmart on the way to college and they pick up locks for the cabinets and covers for all the plugs in his dorm room, then we'll have a problem. What's appropriate for someone in infancy in terms of protecting them is inappropriate later on in life. And God's plan for our lives is that we would not stay in infancy, but that we would grow towards maturity. That maturity is marked by an abiding life in Jesus. That the way we move from immaturity to maturity is we learn to draw life day by day from the vine. We learn to depend upon Jesus. The way that we mature in our faith is, is that we begin to know the answers to life's most important questions as Jesus would have us answer them. 
that our identity and our community and our purpose and, and our money and our hope, those are all reflect what Jesus says about what real life is all about. And rarely do I find people can arrive at answers to those questions and rarely are people able to learn how to live an abiding life without someone to help them. Early in my Christian life, I had help learning how to abide in Jesus, learning how to read the scriptures, learning how to pray, learning how to share my faith. And so it's true of us that we need the help of another person or a group of people in a small group who can help us learn how to abide in Christ and, and how we can learn to answer the most important questions of life from God's word as Jesus instructs us. <clears throat> we are unsinkable as we live in union with Christ. But so often, we drift away from an awareness of that union with Christ, that abiding in Jesus, and we immediately begin to sink. And what we learned last week is that all of us are sinkable apart from Jesus. Verse 15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That many of us envision our lives as if we were just a, a, giant, a, a giant cruise ship, just cruising through the oceans. Or we picture our lives, maybe we're more militant, we picture our lives as a battleship or an aircraft carrier, conquering the world. The reality is, without Jesus, I am a leaky John boat with a rusted hull. I am the chief of sinners. I'm, but, but I'm just the kind of person that Jesus came into the world to save, and so are you. So when you're willing to admit, I'm not a cruise ship, I'm not a battleship, I'm a leaky John boat, then God says, ah, I've got you right where I want you, living in dependence upon Jesus. Now, look at verses 18 through, through uh, 20. We're going to see uh, the answers to the five questions that Jesus has, uh, that, that we need to ask. What do we, who am I? Where do I belong? Why am I here? What do I do with my stuff? And where am I going? Is there any hope? Now, we're going to see all of, three of those in these three verses. And we'll see the answers to the other two questions in other passages in the book of Timothy. But let's start with identity. Who am I? This command, verse 18, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. Paul reminds Timothy of his special identity, that he has a special relationship with Paul. He calls him his son in the faith, his child in the faith, in verse 2 of chapter 1. And he says, you, Timothy, have a special identity. You are my son in the faith. And that points to the special identity that all of us who have Jesus as our Savior and Lord, all of us have a special identity. We are 
children of God. We're children of God. That if you're joined to Christ by faith, you can wake up every day and say, God is my heavenly father. Heaven is my home. Today is one day nearer. All Christians, oh, Jesus is my big brother. And all Christians are my brothers and sisters too. Did you read that in Matthew 12 this week? Jesus said, who are my brother and sister and mother? They're the ones who do the will of God. The will of God is that we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And when we do, Jesus says, you are my brothers and sisters. Does that blow you away? That you have a new identity. We live in a world that is so confused about identity. We live in a world that wants to divide everyone up according to their race or their sex. Oh, but Jesus says we're one race and we all have something in common. We're all sinners and we need salvation through grace. And we can have it. And when we do, we get a new identity. We're children of God. The world wants us to determine our identity based on our feelings. And the Bible says, no, don't determine your identity based on your feelings. Determine your identity based on the promises of Scripture. That if you confess Jesus is Lord, if you trust in him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel, you get a new identity. You're a new creation. You're called a son of God, and Jesus is your older brother. I wake up every day and I can't believe it. I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. Me. I can't believe it. A new identity. We have a new community. Where do I belong? I belong to the church. Now, in this passage, verses 18 through 20, we see a characteristic of the church that maybe we've not considered before. Verse 20, among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, last week we had some folks join the church, and, and this week we had some more join the church, and as they did, I asked them this question. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to promote its purity and peace? And when Paul, in verse 20, speaks of handing Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan, he's speaking of the discipline of the church. That Hymenaeus and Alexander are living or teaching in ways that show that they're outside the faith. So Paul says, I'm going to treat them as if they are outside. I'm going to expel them from the membership of the church. So that, so important, the purpose of church discipline is restorative. The purpose of church discipline is not to punish the purpose of church discipline is to restore true believers back to Christ. 
he says, so that they would be taught. His heart is to restore them. The goal of church discipline is to restore people back to saving faith, trust, and reliance on Jesus. Now, there's a, a, a second time in the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy, when Hymenaeus is mentioned. There may not be a slide for that one, but let's look at uh, 2 Timothy 2, um, verse 17. Uh, I'll start in verse 16. Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.20 that we're a part of a new community. We're part of a church. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a church. I'm so grateful to, to not be alone in life and ministry. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church. And I'm grateful to be a part of a church because I know how easily I could wreck my life. And I want for people to come and say, Dave, don't wreck your life. I want to be corrected, don't you? I want help. I want the help of the church to stay faithful to Jesus, don't you? So that's why we join a local church, and that's why we submit to the government and discipline of the church, because I often need the help of people in the church to correct me to help me get back to Jesus. So it's restorative, but in 2 Timothy, we see that it is it's preservative. It's protective. It's restorative. It's also protective for the church because the false teaching of Hymenaeus, the false teaching of Hymenaeus, it's like gangrene. And Paul says, I want to protect the church. I want to put an end to this false teaching. So I want to remove Hymenaeus from the church so that he could repent and believe the gospel and be restored and so that the church could be protected from the false teaching. Both are true in the government and discipline of the church. So it's not in, in First and Second Timothy, the problem is false teaching. The problem in First Corinthians is disobedient living, sinful, a sinful life. In First Corinthians 5, verse 5, Paul speaks of a circumstance in which a man, a man is committing sexual sin. And he says of that man, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So again, the goal of this discipline, the goal of this correction is to restore this one. But whether the issue is false teaching or false living, we all need the help of a church. 
I do. Don't you? Don't you need the help of a local church? That's why we join with a local church. That's why we take the step of membership when we affirm that, yes, I submit myself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to promote its purity and peace. Where do I belong? I belong to his church. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a church. Where do I belong? I belong to Jesus. And I belong to his church. And in that church, not only do I find discipline, but I also find the help. I find the help I need to discover my purpose. Why am I here? Now look back in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's going to speak to Timothy of the issue of purpose. I command, verse 18, I command, uh, this, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Timothy, you have a purpose you have a command. You have an assignment from God. I command you. You received this ministry by the laying on of hands. You received this ministry according to the promises that were made about you. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, we, Paul says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through, the prof through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. So this, there's the church, the presbytery, and there's the purpose. There's community, and there's the use of Timothy's spiritual gifts. They go together. When we find ourselves in a local church, we're called to use our gifts in the local church to serve one another. You say, well, how do I discover my spiritual gift? Well, let me help you. Get involved. Get engaged. Deploy yourself in ministry. Get involved in a small group. Get involved in a team. When you deploy yourself in ministry, you'll discover those gifts and abilities that God has given you. And when, as you discover that and have those gifts confirmed by the church, you'll be able to develop them. So you start. Start. Get involved. Go to a small group. Get involved in serving one another. And when you do, you'll discover Deploy, discover, then develop. So many Christians, they sit on the sideline and they wait. Oh, Lord, show me what my gift is. Show me what my purpose is. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and life passes them by. But instead, we can deploy ourselves in ministry confident that Jesus is working through his church. We can get involved in a small group. We can get involved in a ministry. We can deploy ourselves, and that's how we'll discover our spiritual gift and then be able to develop it. Purpose. Identity. Oh, I'm a son. Community. I belong to his church. Purpose. I'm here to use my spiritual gift. 
to build up the church and help the church. And then third, money. Now, the issue of our stuff is not in 18, 19, and 20, but it is in the book of Timothy. If you turn over to the end um, of the book, verse 17 of chapter 6, Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So what do we do with our stuff? We gladly share our stuff with one another. We don't live for treasure. We live for Jesus. And as we live for Jesus as our treasure, we find incredible joy at giving our stuff away to one another so that others could be blessed. Can we talk? We're all rich. We may, may, we may not all be equally rich, but listen, compared to the rest of the world, we're all rich. On Friday, I'm going to fly to India, and I'll be in India for two weeks. Compared to many of the people that I'll interact with in India, we are all rich. So that means that every single one of us can learn from this book of 1 Timothy how to conduct ourselves as a part of the church. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. What do we do with our stuff? We gladly share it. And then hope. You see that in the verses I just read. We're not to be conceited or to fix our hope upon the uncertainty of riches, but we have hope. Where am I headed? I have been given eternal life. We saw that last week in the passage that we studied together. Um, verse uh, 16, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That we have an eternal kind of life, that we've been born again into an eternal kind of life, that our life now is an eternal life that's going to go on forever. How do I know? Because I know Jesus. Verse 1, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Jesus Christ, on a Sunday morning, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ stepped out of his tomb. And he said, because I stepped out of my tomb, one day you will too. Because I have been victorious over death, I can give you an eternal kind of life. I can so fill your life with an eternal hope that everything you do can be animated by hope in my resurrection. So Paul, in another place in, in Philippians, he would say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to live my life plugged into hope. What would it be like to live your life with an answer to the question, 
Where am I going? That where I'm going is sure and certain because Jesus Christ walked out of a grave and he said, one day everyone will too and those who put their trust in me will have an eternal kind of life on a new earth with new bodies and they'll live forever without sin. Everything sad will come untrue. That's our hope. Now, we've walked through identity and community and purpose and money and hope, and we've done three of those from verses 18 through 20, and we've done two of those from other passages in the book of 1 Timothy. So now, don't you see why we're studying this book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy this year? Don't you see why it's so important that if we want to build a culture at Good News Church of being and making disciples, we want to win the lost and build believers and equip workers and multiply disciple makers. It's critical that we understand how to move towards maturity. And this book, wow, it's so helpful to discover how we can grow toward maturity as followers of Jesus Christ. So that we won't wreck our lives. Now, what I'm going to invite you to, what I'm going to invite you to is to fight the good fight. I want you to fight the good fight, to live your life as if the answers to those five questions that I've given you this morning were true in your life, and that's going to involve faith. That's going to involve faith. For, uh, Paul says to Timothy in verse 18, by them, you fight the good fight, keeping faith, verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience. Now, how do we fight the good fight? We fight the good fight by having faith in Jesus Christ. And we fight the good fight by having a good conscience before Jesus Christ. And how do you get those? Well, you get both of them from the same source. You get faith and a good conscience by looking to Jesus Christ and the cross. Let me show you that. In Hebrews chapter 9, in Hebrews chapter 9, we read this, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We place our faith and hope in Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross. And by that work for us on the cross, Paul says, and the writer of Hebrews says, that we can have a good conscience, a conscience that's cleansed by Jesus. Now, how do we get it? We get it from the cross. We get it from looking to Jesus and his work on the cross. So listen, lost people, they need the cross to be saved. If you're here this morning, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then what Paul says or what the writer of Hebrews says is what you need is to have your conscience cleansed from dead works. 
If you're not a Christian, then what the bad news of the gospel says is that our best works, our best efforts are dead. The problem with our good works is they just don't work. We can't, by our good works, earn or merit eternal life. Eternal life is only a gift of grace. It's only a work of Jesus and his saving death on the cross. The bad news of the gospel is that we're all leaky boats caught in a Category 5 hurricane. The bad news of the gospel is that none of us can save ourselves through our good works. They're dead. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ on the cross, he shed his blood to secure for us the forgiveness of our sins. We had committed crime after crime after crime against God, but Jesus shed his blood and died in our place, and God took all of our sin and put it on Jesus and punished him in our place. And by the shedding of his blood, he makes it possible for us to be forgiven and to receive the gift of eternal life. There was a time in my life where I tried to work my head off to please God. I tried Religion 101. I tried to change my life. I turned over a new leaf. I tried to turn my life around. I said, God, I want to be happy, so I'm going to pursue life with you through my good works. You know what happened? I failed. I failed Religion 101. Then I found out that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I was set free. Has he done that for you? He will. There was a moment in my life where I turned from trying to be good to earn my salvation to trusting in Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. Have you? Won't you? Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. When I heard the gospel, when I saw my need of forgiveness and I saw what Jesus had done on the cross, I said, Jesus, come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Help me become the person you want me to be. Have you done that? Won't you? If you're here this morning and you're lost, you need the gospel, you need the cross. And it's available to you for forgiveness. It's available to you for your conscience to be cleansed from pursuing dead works that can't save you to pursuing Jesus who can. But you know, we all need the cross. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you need the gospel. You need the, the cross to remind you of what Jesus has done so that you won't wreck your life. You need the cross this morning so that you won't wreck your life. When I forget about Jesus, there's nothing that I'm not capable of in false belief, in false living, in sinful practice. I'm capable easily of wrecking my life. 
And so I need to come back again and again and again to the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you need the gospel. You need the cross to be reminded of the object of your faith and your hope. You need the gospel to give you faith and a good conscience. You need Jesus to tell you again this morning, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Does that blow you away? I mean, have you blown it this week? Did you get angry with your spouse or your kids? Did you lash out in anger? Did you drive on I-95 this week? You are forgiven. Christian, you're forgiven through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Your conscience is cleansed. You're forgiven. You are adopted into God's forever family. Christian, through the work of Jesus, you're adopted into God's forever family. You are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're cleansed. And the Holy Spirit is working from the inside out to make you more and more like Jesus. Every day you could say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come and fill me. Holy Spirit, form Jesus in me. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're forgiven. You're adopted. You have the Holy Spirit. You have a purpose on this earth. You have something big enough to live your life for. His name is Jesus. And he's given you spiritual gifts and abilities to use to help win the lost and build believers and equip workers and multiply disciple makers and send people to the nations until the great commission is finished. Christian, all of that happens because God the Son climbed on a cross and shed his blood for you. And he stepped out of the grave and he says, a new way of life is available to you, an eternal kind of life. Toenail your heart to that. Plug your life into Jesus. Every day, in moment-by-moment moment, reliance and dependence upon the gospel, live your life with and for him. Steve Childers, in a little essay he wrote called The Transforming Power of the Gospel, he says this, I began learning that the gospel is not just a gate I must pass through one time, but a path I should walk each day of my life. And so he says every day, he reminds himself, you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're adopted, you're free, you're not alone. How about you? You're here, and you're not a Christian. Turn. And trust in Jesus if you're here and you are a Christian. Oh, man, what Jesus could do in your life. 
He can give you a new identity. He has. He can give you a new community. He has. He can give you a new purpose. He has. He can give you something to invest your stuff in and your life in. And he has. He can give you an eternal hope. And he has. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the message of the gospel and press it into our hearts. Jesus, I can persuade, but only you can convert. I can invite, but only you can draw. And so I pray that you would be drawing lost people into saving faith in you. If you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as Savior and Lord, won't you? Won't you right now say to Jesus, Jesus, I admit to you that in many ways I have sinned and I am sorry. I believe, Jesus, you paid the full and awful penalty for my sin on the cross and you rose from the dead. Forgive me all my sin and give me the gift of eternal life. Come into my life as Savior and Lord. Help me become the person you want me to be. Jesus, every day, the gospel is available to us. Every day, the light and heat of the gospel is available to us. And we're cold and stony. And I pray that the gospel would warm us up. I pray that by your grace, we would see how great the gospel really is. That warmed by your love, Father, we could go to a lost world to invite people to come and find warmth with us. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.